John chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Let me uh, start off by saying hello to the folks that are online as well as uh, saying to the, specifically the Brevard and Franklin campuses. Yesterday, you guys just did a phenomenal job. You spanned out uh, all over the different parts of uh, uh, Transylvania and Macon County and you ministered to a bunch of schools. Great job. All right, so the rest of the campuses, uh, our time is coming up this Saturday. So again, great, great uh, job on that. So here's where we are. We're, uh, as, uh, as the video just said, we're in a deal called the Year of the Bible. The Year of the Bible, we're taking 50 weeks to go starting in Genesis and we're working our way through the high points of the story of God. And we're in a section right now that is uh, that it does slow down. It slows down because it's the final week of Jesus's life. And the Gospels, oftentimes they just kind of, they go through very, fairly quickly some of the episodes and encounters. But when it gets to uh, the final week, it slows down uh, tremendously. And the context you're going to see now is not a great time for the, uh, the disciples. It's known as the upper room discourse. A lot of bad stuff has happened. And so at this point in time, uh, Judas has already left. He's going to betray Jesus. And uh, Peter has already been, it's already been prophesied, Peter, you're going to actually deny me uh, before the rooster crows. And on top of all that stuff, uh, Jesus has just told the disciples Hey, I'm going to leave. I know I've been with you for three and a half years, but, but I'm out of here. And Thomas is like, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You're going to We put all of our eggs into your basket, and now, now you're saying you're going to leave. And to say all that, this second floor flat in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago it was not a great time for the disciples. It was a downtime. It was a tense time. It was a time where they didn't have a lot of answers to a lot of the questions that they had. I kind of debated on whether to share that, but I would say probably last Sunday afternoon uh, was in some ways that was, that, was, that was my time. Last Sunday afternoon, uh, I could tell. I mean, I was just, I was kind of, I don't know if you know it, I had a I was kind of ticked all day long, even on Sunday morning, which doesn't happen uh, that often. But by Sunday afternoon, all the stuff over the last 16 months, it was starting to just almost overflow. The anxiety, the disappointment, the emails, the anger, the masks, though you name it, the online, watching yourself preach to an empty room, all of that stuff, it was just, it was, it was bubbling over. So I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to go do what I oftentimes do for a little therapy, all right, and it's cheaper than counseling, so what I do is I got a little hill by my house, and I go up there, and I usually just take a sand wedge, a lob wedge, and I hit golf balls down to the property line, and usually this is great for therapy. I mean, it's relaxing, a ranger, uh, my German shepherd, he does wind sprints for about 30 minutes up and down, up and down, up and down. It's, it's, it's awesome for both of us. But it, it not only didn't help, it just, got, it just got worse. And so here, to my shame, here's what, here's what last Sunday afternoon did. After about 20 minutes, believe it or not, I was like, hey, you're kind of hitting it well. But I couldn't even think about that. I was actually thinking about all the stuff and the emotions. And again, I'm a I'm the eight on the Enneagram, I'm the German ancestry, I'm the Stoic. I never have done this before. I took that wedge, and there's a tree about where that camera is right there. Zoom, just flew that thing, boom, right in the tree, and it fell down. And I got even angrier because it didn't break. It was still intact. I go over there, 
I pick up this wedge and I proceed to smash that thing up against the tree about 10 times. On the 10th time, this is what we have left. What are you all laughing for? This is like pastor confession time. All right. You hadn't done that? All right. Um, it not felt like that. And so I go in there and it smashed and I'm still, it helped a little bit actually. It did help for, for a few minutes. It felt kind of good actually. But I end up going in there. I'm like, hey, time's up. Go pick up the balls. I go into my wife and uh, she's in the kitchen and she usually knows that I'll come back in after 30 minutes of that and feel pretty, pretty good. And I was like, hey, I just got to tell you something. Um, I broke a wedge up against the tree. She's like, you did not. It's like, yeah, I did. I still remember the look on my wife's face. It was, she actually didn't say anything. She just went like that. And I say that to say this. That evening, the Lord really convicted me of John 15, 5, when he just simply said this. I mean, I've learned, I had to learn this lesson a hundred times, but I had to learn it a hundred and the hundred and first time. And John 15, 5 says, when are you ever going to learn this? Okay, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The flip side of that is actually the next chapter, and he says, you know what? Greater things than you've even seen, I will do. But the whole thing is based on this truth, is that you and I, we are dependent creatures. Every single thing God wants to do in you and then through you is based on you applying and understanding that you are a dependent creature. Everything you needed to live the victorious Christian life was given to you when you got saved. Every component. But what he does, and he spends these last minutes with his disciples reminding them of a ministry that, depending on your background, uh, you and I don't talk about that much, or other times that's all you talk about. If you come from like a Baptist heritage, this subject matter makes you nervous. You think about you think about the weird uncle at the family reunion. It's like, man, I'm glad you're here, but it could get crazy. That's kind of what you think when you talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Other people may have come from a Pentecostal background, and you're like, yeah, finally, this is fixing to blast off. We are excited. The whole point, though, is this, is that we are dependent creatures, and if you don't get that down, your Christian life in general, not just the exceptional like the last 16 months, but the everyday things, like trying to make a marriage work, trying to disciple your kids, trying to remain pure till marriage, trying to lead a company, whatever it is you're doing, it will be nothing more than an exercise in exhaustion and futility, frustration, and eventually it will end in failure. I mean, how many times, you might not have busted a wedge up against a poplar tree, but how many times have you sat there and told your loved ones, you know what, I'm gonna change, it's gonna be different Never again will I do that. Never again will I touch that bottle. Never again will I lose my temper like that. Never again will I look on that channel. Never again will I do that. And yet you go to bed saying that, and yet you go to bed two nights later, three nights later, saying the same exact thing. So all of that by way of introduction, John chapter 14 is... Uh, where we're going to be, because before you go, hey, what's wrong with me? Why, can't I, why do I do it over and over again? I, say, I titled this message uh, really 
uh, that little line in what's in the Apostles' Creed. Now, by the way, the Apostles' Creed, if you ever look at that, the apostles didn't write that, all right? What it was was a creed in the early church as they looked at what the apostles taught and they tried to put it in a succinct way. But one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed is simply, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. So John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, chapter 14 to 16, the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 20 times. So let me just take four verses that are filled with the principles from the rest of it and give you three things we can say, okay, these are the promises, the affirmations, the truths that I need. John 14 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So I want to try to make this as practical as you can, taking Bible truths and applying it to where you and I are. Right? Most of what we struggle with is not information, although that's key. It's typically application. How do I take that and actually do what it says? So let me give you three promises you can take from these. And the first one is, is right there. And these are just going to be taking different words from the text, bringing them out. And so look at it. With me, it's, this is actually in 16, 17, and 18 in different ways. Promise number one is simply God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. Now, he says this a bunch of different ways. Let me give you a couple of words there that, that bring this out. The first one is actually that little word, another. I will send you another helper. There's a couple different words he could use for another. One of them is uh, heteros, which is another of a different kind. That's not what he uses here. He uses the word alos, A-L-L-O-S, which means another of the same kind. In other words, I'm going to send you somebody just like me. What I've been to you for the last three and a half years, I'm going to send somebody so they will be to you what I have been to you. Hence, I will not leave you as orphans. And that's a big deal because these guys really, 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 really were dependent on Jesus. I mean, when they were lonely, he comforted them. When they were scared, he spoke courage into them. When they messed up, he told them the right way to go about it. So over and over and over again, he played the central role for three and a half years in these men's lives. And now he says, I'm going, but he says, listen, I am going to send somebody just like me. And it says, he will be with you. He will be with you. Now, a summary of the Bible, looking at it this way, because God has always wanted to be present with his people. And so in the Old Testament, it's like God watches over his people. God watches over his people. In the Gospels, with Jesus, God is with his people. But after you get Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes, he's not just watching over and he's not just with, he's actually in his people. That's why when the Bible says, listen, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Right? It's not just talking about how you look in a bikini. It's actually talking about the fact that God himself has chosen, if you are a believer, to live on the inside of you. That in and of itself ought to just freak you out. Because you look throughout the Bible and it changes. In the Garden of Eden, he came every evening and he walked with them. In Exodus, he was a, a cloud or a fire. In the temple, it says, you know what? Our God is with us. 
When Jesus came, they said his name will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. And Jesus walked with them and talked with them and showed them. And then amazingly, it says, I'm going to send somebody who's going to be on the inside of you. Now, let's just take one little, in about two chapters, he's going to say what could be the most amazing verse in the whole book of John. And here's what he says, John 16, verse 7. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by this, but listen to what he says. John 16, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I mean, we've kind of joked about this before, but I mean, think about that. He says, it is to your advantage that I'm going to leave. Now, you're going to contrast that to how awesome it would have been and how awesome it would be now if it's like, man, if I lived back there when Jesus walked and talked, how awesome would that have been? Or even now, what if he was like, what if Jesus was like right here, walking and talking around? How awesome would that be? I mean, if you're late for work, boom, all the construction on 26 is gone. It's like green light all the way. That's awesome. If you forget to go to Publix, what's he do? Boom, he's going to take your water and turn it into grape juice. That's what he's going to do. He's going to turn it into grape juice. Exactly what he does. All right, exactly what he does. Um, if you don't know how to do your algebra homework, boom, algebra homework is done. Again, we thought we joke, but it's like if you have a dog that dies, boom, raises the dog from the dead. If you have a cat that dies, he finds you an awesome shovel in which to bury it. I mean, that's an awesome, it's awesome if he was here, but, but, but. Come on now, come on, sis. You knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. You knew it. So this is called, and you see this throughout this text, this is called the doctrine of the Trinity. Listen, this is not some seminary discussion. This has to do with you. This has to do with your life, your purpose, your joy. This is called the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, again, is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not an influence. He is a co-equal person in the triune God. So a couple of statements here to make sure I say them clearly because, the word, again, the word Trinity refers to the reality that God is one in essence and yet plural in personality. There is one God composed of three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Each one is equally and fully God in and of themselves. And so the reason they got to do that is, again, the Holy Spirit especially in Baptist heritage, is usually looked at and usually talked about as the junior executive of the Godhead. Just is. And what he's saying here is just as much as Jesus is God, God the Holy Spirit is also God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And you see it over and over again here. It's like the Father sends the Spirit. Uh, the Son goes back to pray for the Spirit to come, and then the Spirit actually arrives. Or to put it in another way, you got the Father overseeing the plan, the Son delivering on the plan, and the Holy Spirit actually implementing the plan. Now, here's the reason that that's super important. One of the reasons that's super important is this, this question, how different would your relationship with God be? Listen, ask yourself a question. How different would your relationship to God be? How would it change if we saw the presence of God with us or in us as a real person? 
So just the way you and I deal with sin, if we understood it's, it's, a, re, it's a real person that I am hurting, not just some law, not just some impersonal command, but I'm actually grieving a person. That when God convicts you, that's a person's voice saying, why are we here? Why are we watching this? Why are we at this place? Why are you not humbling yourself and asking forgiveness? Or he convicts you of a certain behavior. It's not just the preacher up here saying stuff, but when he says, hey, why don't you go public with me? Why don't you go public? Why don't you go ahead and get baptized just like you saw some people baptized? Or why don't you make things right with your dad? Or why don't you start serving again in ministry like you did pre-COVID? Or why don't you sponsor a compassion child? Why don't you tell your spouse that you are sorry that you actually hurt her feelings? What if you realize that's not just some kind of, you know what, I should, I ought, but it's actually the person, the third person of God saying, I'm speaking into your life. Or when all hell breaks loose in your life and there's an amazing amount of comfort and peace and you can't explain it, that's not just, and, and all of a sudden a verse comes to your mind, that's not just some verse you memorized back in junior high. That's actually a person speaking to you. And so, uh, just going. how would your relationship change if you said, you know what, God is on the inside of me. God lives on the inside of me. Because he goes from God is in you. Second one is that God will help you. Now, look at a couple of different ways he brings this out. God will help me. Just God will, God will help me. The word helper there is a word called, uh, it's a word paraclete, which means somebody called alongside to help you. It's actually almost like a defense attorney when you're in a court of law and they come alongside and they speak on your behalf. Amazingly, the same word is used over in 1 John. John uses it in 1 John to talk about Jesus, to say he is your advocate. But here the helper, one called alongside to comfort, to encourage or to exhort. Again, you're like, well, how much help do I need? Well, maybe like, maybe like me, you needed to be reminded of John 15 that says, you know what, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. Doesn't mean you can't work hard. Doesn't mean you can't put a lot of sweat equity into your house. What it does mean is there can be virtually nothing of eternal significance that you can do apart from him. And so I gotta say, you know what, I, I, need, I need the help. Um, let me just kind of put this out here. Um, Oftentimes, when Christians start talking about the Holy Spirit, amazingly, uh, it's usually getting all in disagreement about what signs and what gifts and all that stuff are still here and what are not here and what is the word replaced and all that kind of stuff. There's actually no talk about that in these three chapters, the most concentrated section in the Bible about the Spirit of God. But what you see is you see the fact that the Spirit of God does change you. And the way those look are much bigger than signs or speaking or serving even. Paul says it this way. You want to know whether you're a Spirit-filled believer or not? We'll talk about what that means in a second. Are you a Spirit-filled believer? I'm going to say it twice because this, there's one baptism of the Spirit of God that happens when you come to Christ. It's one baptism. When you come to Christ... The Holy Spirit enters on the inside of you, Romans chapter 8. 
The question is, and you get all the Holy Spirit you're going to get when you come to Christ. The question is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you get. The question is how much of you does the Holy Spirit get. And so, a little quiz. Galatians chapter 5 is known as the fruit or the manifestations or the outward visible representation of the fruit of the Spirit. This is what it looks like when you and I actually are filled with the Spirit. Because we got a lot of stuff for like... You might go to a service and uh, like, man, the spirit was really moving. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was. Or maybe we just sang your two favorite songs and, uh, and, and it was a packed room. Maybe that's all it was. But the fruit of the spirit, he says, there's nine characteristics. So if you want to ask, hey, am I filled with the spirit of God? Then it's not something you've got to just guess on. He says there's nine characteristics. Are these, are these present and are they growing in your life? Here's what he says. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so if you're like, you know what, am I loving more people now than I did six months ago? You want to be able to say, absolutely, not perfectly, but directionally, I'm loving more people. Joy. Do you have more joy than your atheist neighbor down on the drum circle? Seriously, do you? Do you have more joy then the person that, you know what, has nothing to do with God. You're like, I ain't got no joy. COVID's been hard. Everybody knows that. Joy is not how awesome things are. It's how awesome God is. Love, joy, peace, patience. Do you lose your temper less than you did? Do you break clubs less than you did maybe three months ago? Self-control. Are you disciplining yourself? Are you killing your sin more and more and more so you can live a life of holiness? Because the bottom line is it says that God lives on the inside of you. I was reading this week, somebody just had this imaginary conversation. I was like, how did you even think about that? But it's a great idea. It's like, imagine the confusion of a caterpillar. I mean, imagine. I mean, all a caterpillar does basically for most of his life, he's like fat and pudgy and walks around on a piece of dirt and climbs a leaf every once in a while. Doesn't go real, real far. And all of a sudden, he lays down and he takes a nap. And he wakes up and he's like, hey, hey, he's got a felt little body. He's got these wings that fly. He is beautiful. And he's like, where did I get these? How did this happen? And then he flies and he's like, I'm amazed that I can fly. In the same way, the spirit of God lives on the inside of you. Should it not amaze us at times? It's like, man, a year ago, if somebody had said that, we would have thrown hands, but not now, not now. Now when I hear that, my first reaction was to kind of, but then it's like, you know what? Hurting people hurt people. And just like God saved me, God can save this guy. And you back off and you almost are stunned. You're like, oh. I mean, a year ago, it would have been going down. But now you're like, you know what? You just think, you walk away and you think, you know what? I'm just going to pray for him. A year ago, somebody would have come up to you and go, did you hear about such and such? Did you hear about such and such? And she thinks she's going to be a cheerleader. And she thinks this. And before, a year ago, you would have jumped in there and go, like, who does she think she is? She can't do any of that cheerleader stuff. And you would have joined in. But now you're like, you know what? You just either walk away or you say something good. You know what that is? That's the spirit of God doing something in your life. Because you need help. I mean, think about, think about Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Here's the paraphrase of Acts chapter 1. He basically says this. Jesus has died on a cross. He rose from the grave. 
you got millions of people out in the world, they're gonna die and go into a Christless eternity. And he says basically this, go to Jerusalem and don't do anything. Go in there and wait. Don't preach any sermons, don't put any strategic plans together, don't make any cold calls, don't do any of that until the Spirit of God comes. Because I've done something really awesome and if you go out there without my help, you're just gonna jack the whole thing up. And amazingly, they actually listen to what he says because that's what you do when somebody rises from the dead and gives you an order. They're like, you know what, we're gonna do what he told us to do and they wait and then God uses them to change the world. And some of you are like, you know what, there's something missing in my walk. You know, it's just not what it was. It's just not what it should be. It's not what it could be. My family needs something better. My friends need somebody stronger. And I'll tell you this, it's not something missing. It's someone who is missing. Because without the Spirit's consistent filling, all you're going to do is operate in your own willpower and your own strength. And all you're going to get is just human-sized results. And some of us are so stubborn, we can actually manufacture some of that for at least some period of time. But at some point, the wedge is going in the tree. At some point, that's going to happen. So here's just an easy question. When is the last time you saw the Spirit of God do something undeniable in you or around you? And when's the last time? When's the last time he did something that you could not explain away in about a three-minute little personality test? Like, how am I going to do that? Let me, uh, let me give us a couple thoughts on how you're going to get his help. First one is this. You got you to admit you need the help. Seriously, you got to admit you need the help. Is that not hard to do? I mean, we are trained to not do that. All right, I don't know. I've been a man my whole life, so I don't know about ladies exactly. I can just tell you right now on behalf of men, we would rather do anything than ask for help. I mean, all you got to do is see how lost we get before GPSs came out. Seriously, because we would drive to Alaska before we're going to actually pull over and ask somebody for help. Why? I don't need no help. I'm lost. I don't need no help. And that is oftentimes our greatest downfall. I mean, think about this. Uh, what's the worst question? If you go in for a job interview, what is the worst question that you know you're going to get asked? What's your greatest weakness? What's your What's your greatest weakness? What's your greatest weakness? I mean, you know that's coming at some point. There's even websites dedicated to help you how to answer that question. What do you say? Usually you disguise a strength as your greatest weakness. Well, my greatest weakness is I work too hard. Yeah, I just work too hard. Just work too hard. I'm a perfectionist. That's what I am. I just, I, but, or you say that you used to have that problem, but you don't have it now. You know what? I used to drive people too hard, but now the Lord, not, you don't usually say the Lord. You usually say, now I've been softened, and now I still push myself hard, but I'm a gentle shepherd with the people that are underneath my care. Instead of just like, you know what? I, what you're going to have to do at some point, let me just, some of you got some stuff right now, you would be embarrassed. If, but I would say this. There's probably not anybody watching online or at any of the campuses that don't have something that you would be embarrassed if all of a sudden went up on the screens, Correct? Really? Okay. All right. Fine. We got big brother. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, we all have stuff. We've all said, I'm not going to do that anymore. You do it. I'm going to do this and you end up not doing it. Loved one, you are not going to do anything that God wants you to do the way God wants you to do it unless you get God's help to do it. 
Here's the way Galatians 5 also says, or Galatians 6, it says, walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. When you walk, that's dependent by nature. I'm walking right now, and each time I'm doing it, I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I'm dependent on my right foot now, my left foot right now. So it is dependent on its nature. And what you need to do is basically admit you can't do it. I can't quit this habit. I can't forgive this person. I can't save my marriage. I can't bring back my prodigal. I can't somehow love this person. And just saying I can't, but you can, is one of the first steps to God doing a great work in your life. Acknowledge you can't. And then secondly, let me just give you a little theology. You gotta be filled with the Spirit. Now listen to me, don't freak out on me. Filled with the Spirit, one baptism of the Spirit. You get indwelled by the Spirit one time. But throughout the epistles and the book of Acts, what you see is you see one baptism. Baptism just means to dip or to dunk or to submerge. That's what the word means. So one time the Spirit of God comes on the inside of you, but numerous fillings. Over and over and over again, numerous fillings. The classic verse is Ephesians 5.18 that says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled, present tense, by the Holy Spirit. It means be being filled, continually be filled. It means every day, almost many times a day, God, I tell you what, I can't, but you can. As you all know, I didn't grow up in church, but I got discipled through a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. I think it's called Cornerstone now. The founder of that deal was a guy named Bill Bright. Bill Bright taught a great concept about being filled with the Spirit. And it was just a picture that helped me remember how to do this on a continual basis, all right? So this is not some kind of close your eyes, count to three, put your hands together in a lotus, that's not it at all. It's the idea of, okay, how do I take that scripture and apply it on a consistent basis? And he did what was called spiritual breathing, spiritual breathing. Spiritual breathing is just the idea of if you exhale, just think of exhaling as confession. Think of exhaling as repentance. We talked about that last week. Exhaling is when God, the Spirit, points his finger in your chest and says, hey, this was wrong, this grieved me, this, this caused me pain, don't do that. That's not, you're going down the wrong road. When he points his finger in your chest and says, you lost your temper, you, you name it, and he does something specific and says, this is it. The moment you become aware of that, you basically exhale again, repent, confess, empty yourself of that sin. Because here's what, what I know. God is not gonna, God the Holy, so that's the, he's a Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is not gonna fill something that's filled with a bunch of unconfessed junk. So it's not about you being perfect, it is about you being clean and confessed and honest. And then inhale. You breathe in, you pray to be filled with the Spirit of God as you surrender control to Him. Basically, there's about, uh, I told you before, there's three things I do before I come up and speak every time, all right? Uh, number one, I make sure my mic works. Number two, I make sure my fly is zipped. And number three, I pray, God, would you please fill me with the Holy Spirit? Those are the three things in that order, okay? Fill me with the Spirit of God. So we always talk about, and people get baptized, what do we say? Jesus in my place. That's what, Jesus in my place. Jesus, that's the gospel in four words. That's salvation in four words. Jesus in my place. He took the debt that I owed and I couldn't pay, and he paid that debt on the cross. That's the gospel. That's salvation. Sanctification, the way God works in your life after salvation, can also be crystallized into about four words as well. And that can be, you know what? Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. 
or power of Holy Spirit. I just needed four words, and if I put the in there, it'd be five, and it wouldn't work for the illustration. So just put power of the, of the Holy Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to get the help, there needs to be some things that you say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do certain things. By the power of the Holy I just wrote down some. The power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to forgive my dad. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to become a foster parent. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to overcome my addiction. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to stay in my struggling marriage. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to start serving again in church. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to forgive my wife's infidelity. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to share my faith with a coworker. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to read the Bible to my children over and over and over again. Just saying, you know what? The power of God helps me uh, do stuff that I could not ordinarily do. Now, this is not... He's not going to, it's not like, oh, pray this prayer and he's going to help you seal the deal or score a touchdown. That's not it at all. He's going to help you do things like what we just said, like forgive, like show grace, like disciple. So let me give you one more. Um, so, okay, God is with me. God will help me. And here's a cool one that you actually, hopefully, are listening. hopefully it's happening actually right now, whether you know it or not. And that is this, God will teach me. God will teach me. God will teach me. Look how it says it in the text. This is mentioned throughout this whole text, but it said the word helper, again, can mean counselor. can mean counselor. You go down a few verses, it says, and I will bring to your remembrance. Another verse says, and I will teach you all things. I will teach you all things, right about verse 23. So he says, uh, if it's counselor, when I say counselor, just one who gives counsel. Anybody in here ever gotten bad counsel? Now, again, I'm not talking about a professional counselor. I'm talking about anybody got any bad counsel given to them by a friend. I mean, bad counsel comes all the time. Bad counsel sounds like uh, bad counsel tells you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. Bad counsel says, I'm going to say this in a way that I know you're going to receive because I don't want you to dislike me. So bad counsel is saying this is what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. And this comes in a hundred different ways. Bad counsel is like, yeah, go ahead, and, go ahead and buy it. You can't afford it, but go ahead and buy it. You can pay it later. Yeah, go ahead and bad counsel is go ahead and dig in, dig your heels in, have a stalemate, don't apologize, even though you know you did part of that wrong. Bad counsel says, uh, yeah, go out with him. Go out with him. He's, he's kind of hot. He's kind of handsome. He's not a Christian, and he's kind of crazy, but he's handsome. Go ahead and go out with him. That's, that's bad counsel. Bad counsel is, yeah, pay now, and you'll double your money in 100 days. That's bad counsel. You get it all the time, just bad counsel. And what this is, you've got a counsel that's going to give you good counsel every time says he's the spirit of truth. I mean, hadn't, hadn't this happened to you? Hadn't you been reading your Bible at some point and going, huh, man, I've never seen that before. Hadn't you ever had that happen? Where you're like reading that and you've read something four times and you read it a fifth time. And like, that, that's amazing right there. All right, that's not, just, that's not just what you had for dinner, all right? That's God, the Holy Spirit saying, listen, I want to illuminate what is already written down for you. I want to teach you, or to put it another way, 
You got one teacher at Biltmore Church. Please understand that. You got one teacher, and it's not me. The one teacher at Biltmore Church is the person of the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, how silly would it be to think, I can actually teach you things of God unless God opens up your eyes to see them yourself. I mean, how arrogant, how silly. I understand. I mean, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can, illustrate it the best I can, be as transparent as I can. But bottom line, if God doesn't show you, then it's just not going to happen. And some of you right now, you're like already underlining, like, I never knew God was with me. I never knew God would actually help me in this situation. Again, that's not a cute illustration. That's God the Holy Spirit teaching you. And then lastly, it says he's the spirit of truth. I love this, the spirit of truth. Now, why would he say the spirit of truth? Because we live in a world that wants to lie to you. And we live in a world that lies to us every day, all day. There's about 50 that are pretty common. Here's about four that I just jotted down. Lie number one, we, we buy into this. I bought into this a hundred times. Stuff satisfies. Man, you get that new countertop, you get that new pickup truck, you get that new driver, you get that new whatever, you get that new membership. And it's, man, it's like awesome. And stuff isn't bad. But we just put too much weight on it, and so we do what's that cul-de-sac of stupidity around and around and around. It's not stupid to buy it. It's just stupid to think that actually is going to satisfy long term. Because you and I know as well as anybody else, that stuff we buy right now, the iPhone 12 or whatever it is, you know what? In a year, that thing's going to be junk, and you're going to trade it in. Or you're going to get some awesome lamp, and then about a year from now, it's going to be in a garage sale, and you're selling it for a dollar. But you're like, I had to have it. Lot number two is... Uh, Man, this is, you're just an accident. You're just a cosmic accident. I mean, we've been teaching our kids that for two decades now. You're just a cosmic accident. You're just two molecules came together. It was some little thing back in the deal and became an amphibian, blah, 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 blah. And that's, oh, you're just an animal. And so we're shocked now when actually people act like animals, but we've been teaching them for 20 or 30 years. That's all you are. That's all you are. Um, another one that's big on we reinforce all the time is you're not, you're not lovable unless you're beautiful. Or you're not lovable unless you're successful. You're not lovable unless you're popular. I mean, look how many likes we got. And look at these selfies. And look how awesome my life is. And look at how everything is the highlight of my life. You do realize that, right? You do realize social media is everybody's highlight film. So when you look at somebody's Instagram or you look at somebody's Facebook, you understand they're showing you the highlight reel. They're showing you the best 20 seconds of their life. And what happens is we look at that and we look at our life and we're like, man, my life ain't like that. I'm not sitting there at Cancun with the beach up with a little drink and a coconut. That's not like me at all. I'm sitting here with a deadbeat husband and it ain't going well. And you're like, I must not be lovable. Why? Because you're looking at their highlight reel and then you look over at you and you're like, man, I'm looking at my 24-hour day film and the number four, uh, this is your past defines you. Your past defines you. You know what? You are what you've done. And you've gone too far. You've been gone too long. I mean, really? And this is where you got to, this is where you got to, uh, you know this whole year of the Bible thing? The whole year of the Bible thing was so that the number one goal in that thing was for you to actually get in this book yourself on a consistent basis. That was the number one goal. Number two goal was so that if you're a parent, you can disciple little junior and you can actually read the Bible with him, hence the Jesus Storybook Bible, which was about a billion of you guys got. And that's awesome. We can get some more. 
so that you can sit down with a little scooter and go, you know what, here's the story and let's read it together. And all of a sudden you're like, I can do this, I can do this. But bottom line is, you know what, it's to be able to take the, take the truth and replace the lies with it. So let's just take those four real quick. The world says, you know what, um, stuff satisfies. What does Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses his soul? It's like, you know what, stuff is fine in its place. Just don't put too much stuff on it. Make sure you do soul care first and foremost. What's the second one? The second one was, you know what, you're a cosmic accident. You're just, again, you're just chance that happened to come together. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, you know what, you were fearfully and wonderfully made, and my soul knows that full well. I mean, you don't even have to teach a kid. You know what? God loves you. God made you. You are not an accident. You are made in his image. You're part of the Imago Dei. You are valuable. You're like, well, you know what? I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not successful or I'm not, I'm not lovable unless I'm beautiful or unless I'm popular or unless I'm successful. What's the Bible say? The Bible says, but God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Replace the lie, insert the truth. That's what you're doing over and over and over again. And some of you were kind of in that deal now. We're in August. My wife said it the other day, and I mean, she is the most disciplined person I know, reads her Bible all the time, but she'd gotten a little behind in the year of the Bible reading plan. And she's like, you know what? I got caught up today. I got caught up today. She's like, for two or three weeks, I dreaded that Sunday, morning, Sunday evening text. Okay, the fact you're not laughing means that you know what? You don't know what I'm talking about. Sunday evening text, all of y'all that love Jesus and you actually got onto that reading plan, you get a text on Sunday night that says, here's the reading plan for the, for the, for the week. Okay, and so she would get that and she would like, I'm too far behind, I'm too far behind. And she got caught up. If God's gonna replace a lie with the truth, you gotta give him something to work with, all right? And I said, like, you're like, this gun doesn't work. This gun doesn't work. You got to put some bullets in the gun, okay? The bullets in the gun, the ammunition that God wants to use to shoot down the lies, is called the Word of God. It's called this book right here. And just get on that reading plan. It's as easy as it possibly can be. You can pick, like, you can pick elementary school. You can pick JV. You can pick varsity. Whatever it is you want to do, just, just jump on there. And then you're like, my past defines you. My past defines you. But your past does not define you. That's where that Romans 8.1 is probably my favorite, top three verses in the whole Bible. There's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation basically means, you know what, you're not good for use anymore. Can't use you anymore. And what the Bible is saying is that whisper, because that's the whisper. Hadn't you ever got the whispers before? The whispers, the voices, like, you know what, you are what you do. You are what you make. You've gone too far. You've been gone too long. You've done too much. That's the whisper. And what you got to do is replace that whisper with a louder voice of the gospel. Right? The gospel says there's no condemnation, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Number one, are you in Christ Jesus? Number two, are you filled with the Spirit of God? Right now as you sit in church, like I'm in church. If I'm not filled with the Spirit of God when I'm in church, when am I ever going to be? Believe me. Believe me. You can sit in church and not be filled with the Spirit of God. Acknowledge that you need his help. Confess that sin and just say, God, would you fill me and would you help me for the glory of God and the good of other people? Now, here's the way we're going to end. We hadn't sung this song in a long, 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 long time. Probably the first song I ever learned right after becoming a Christian. And it's like, uh, here's what I want you to I don't want you to sing it because you know it. 
I want you to sing it because that's your heart's direction. Because one of the worst things we can do in church is sing a song we have no intention of fulfilling. All right, that's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is I'm not arrived there yet. Hypocrisy is I have no intending of actually even trying to go that direction. And so what I want you to do, there's a song, just I Surrender All. Well, I Surrender, it's super, super easy, but I don't want you to stand up and sing it by rote memory, but that is the way we're going to end. And so what we're going to do is at all the campuses, I'm going to have you, go ahead and, and, as a matter of fact, go ahead and bow your heads at all the campuses, heads bowed, eyes closed, no looking around, please. All right, just heads bowed and eyes closed. Surrender is not as much about a specific act as it is a specific posture. Surrender is a posture that says, God, whatever it is you're going to put in my life, I'm waving the white flag of surrender. I surrender. I'm not the boss of me anymore. Now, if you've never come to Christ, that's your first act of surrender. I surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Save me. Make me the person you want me to be. I trust that what you did on the cross counted for me, and now I want you to be the boss of me. That's the first act of surrender. But for a lot of us, there's another act of surrender we need to do as well, something new, something fresh. Maybe there is an area that you're like, I, I, I don't want to surrender that. I'm scared. And God's like, trust me. That's what he told the disciples 2,000 years ago. I'm going away. I'm going to send somebody. You're not going to be an orphan. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you with this. Your job is to trust. And so heads bowed and eyes closed. Take the one, maybe two areas of mutiny, of rebellion that are not under the lordship of Christ and exhale, just, God, I want to confess. I want to repent of this area that I have not surrendered to you. It might be something you've done. It might be something that God wants you to do that you haven't done. And then breathe in. Just say, God, as I confess it, I want to breathe in the forgiveness. I want you to fill me with the spirit of God for the glory of God with the people of God. So fathers, we sing this song. I pray that uh, as surrender is done just all over Western North Carolina, as surrender is done, they would stand and just begin to join in on this song of surrender. God, keep us bowed as long as need be, but when we have surrendered, help us to stand and Affirm that and confirm that. You said encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Build each other up. God, to see our brothers and sisters saying, you know what, I surrender all. You're not alone. I'm surrendering as well is such an encouragement. So God, the next couple of minutes as we sing this song, one by one, help us rise to our feet, join in a chorus that we pray would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.